7, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. Good luck, studio. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Paul Chandler, the shy Yeti. <laughs> He's not that shy. All I wanted was a pie, and then I hatched out of an egg. Okay, bring the mic over. He's ready to record. It's the quiet ones you've got to watch, you know. Is it metaphorical? Is it is it deep? Is it deep? Look at the boy. He's got all that shy and bright. Shee, bye. Blimey, Governor. It's the Shy Life Hello, campers. How are you? Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Shy Life Podcast with me, Paul the Shy Yeti. Yes, uh, I'm doing all right, thank you. You hadn't even asked, I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I'm doing okay, and I hope you are too. Um, now, what's this episode going to be about? Well, you may remember last year we uh, did a little episode all about, um, well, we were sort of teaching you things. It was provisionally entitled uh, the Van the Archives uh, University uh, because it involved members of the Van the Archives team. That's me. And, and the two of them, they're back again. It's Andrew and Lisa. Hello. Hello, guys. Oh, we have to do our special speaking, don't we, Andrew? Oh, yes. Uh, hello, Paul. Say hello, Lisa. Hello, Paul. Or as they'd say in Venusian, Thank you. Yeah, you see, I've been learning. We'll, we've been we'll get on to that. Learning Venusian. <laughs> yeah, we're learning Venetian. 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 I like Venetian. I like Venice. So, yeah. yeah maybe, Venus is a bit, bit hotter than Venice. Don't get the two mixed up. You're, you're melt on Venus. I, I could speak Venetian in, with an Italian accent or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, let's run the theme music, and when we come back, we'll let you know what's going on, listeners. Well, you can listen to the whole thing. Uh, let's run that theme music. Darling, it's the Shy Life Podcast. <laughs> you won't find a cast of characters like this everywhere. Hello, Paul. You don't want four nuts, do you? I'll, I'll go anywhere for Delicious. This particular episode of the Shy Life is, is a little more abstract than usual. Go Shy Yeti. Oh, my, I hope you haven't found out my secret. If you thought that was bad, just listen to this. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for it to begin. It's the Shy Life Podcast. So, we do be sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm strangely drawn to yet younger John's ankles as well. <laughs> but has the Shy Life Podcast slowed down? I don't think so. It's all gooey and easy. Yum, 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 yum. yum. <laughs> and we're back, yes. Uh, so this is sort of um, another example of of the sort of quality classes that you'll be getting uh, if you join the Van the Archives University. Um, so, uh, Andrew and Lisa, um, what, what will you be teaching the listeners this time? Uh, so today I'm going to be talking about... Um Vintage horror films of the 50s, 60s and 70s. That sounds very good. And what about you, Andrew? Well, I've got me astronomy books out, so I'm going to be giving you a, a few astronomy facts and feats. And you should see my astronomical feet. They're huge. 
Oh gosh. <laughs> well, I'm used to that being a being a yeti, but uh, and, and listeners, I'll be telling you facts and uh, figures uh, about uh, the the 30th anniversary of Sutton Park, or, or, or well, very nearly is anyway. So, yes, and we'll have a few clips for you. But uh, we've also got some news. I don't think I've told you the big news that happened this week. So, but anyway, Andrew, Lisa, uh, which one of you would like to start do your lesson first? Shall I start? You start. Okay, I will start. I've got to sort my books out. I've, oh, right, got, okay. I've got big piles of books. Oh, God. Yeah, he has, actually. I've got <laughs> big piles. I just, I just have notes. Yeah, that's fine. So, yeah. Um, so, basically, I've been watching... I was going to say re-watching, and then I realised I haven't actually watched most of them before. I've been watching various um, Hammer films and Amicus and American International Picture films mm-hmm. of the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, because I, I don't like the newer horror films. They're a bit too too violent and nasty. But mm. but those ones, are they're, they're quite fun, very gothic. So, mm. um, so the first one I... Well, the first one I watched was actually one from the 70s, but we'll, we'll talk about them. I'll do them in chronological order. Sure. So we'll talk about that in a, in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first Hammer horror film, or the first Hammer gothic film, is The Curse of Frankenstein. Which mm-hmm. was made in uh, ninety, well, or was released in nineteen fifty-seven, mm-hmm. and it stars the ever wonderful Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein, and um, a virtually un- unknown actor at the time, Christopher Lee, as the monster. I vaguely recognise that name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he, you know, he's 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 a bit more famous now than he was then. You know, more yes. people know who he is, but it's. Um, it's a quite amazing film, actually, because he doesn't speak at all, Christopher Lee. He's, he's entirely mute for the mm. whole of the film. Mm. So everything he does, he has to do with his body language. And uh, he can't even do stuff with his face, really, because he's covered in uh, makeup, which mm. used to take three hours a day to apply. Um, so it's all sort of done in his eyes and with his body. And... I don't think I'd realised quite what um, a physical actor he was Um, because I've only seen him really in things as he's got older and obviously was less able to throw himself about, for want of a better word. So, but yes, I I highly recommend it. It's it's a great film. It's um, uh, all filmed in in Eastman Technicolor. So Mm. the, 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 the... the blood or the Kensington gore is very, very red. Mm. Um, and a lot of the dresses of the ladies are probably too bright for when they're actually set in. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting film. Um, it also features uh, a young Melvin Hayes as the young Baron Frankenstein. And he must have had a hell of a gross spurt, Baron Frankenstein, because when he's Melvin Hayes and he's meant to be sort of, I don't know, sort of, 13, 14, he's, he's, quite, he's about a foot smaller than Peter Cushing. <laughs> he's a, and he suddenly has this huge growth spurt and, and gets as tall as Peter Cushing. Probably, but yes. probably mucking around in the, the laboratory. Yes, he might have stretched himself, you never know. Yes, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good, interesting, fun film, um, directed by Terence Fisher and written by Jimmy Sangster, who we, we will be mentioning a few times this evening because he has written the majority of the horror films, of the Hammer horror films that I've watched. So, um, 
they then decided because they had a deal with Universal, so they could use the Universal characters that they had made films with in the 30s. So they then go on to do Dracula uh, in 1958. Mm. And this time we get Christopher Lee as the eponymous Count Dracula. And I think he's the first actor to play Dracula as a sexy kind of character. Because obviously, Bela Lugosi's not at all um, sexy in that way. Oh, um, hang on, hang on. I would. I'd, 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 I'd give him a, a second glance. <laughs> it's the accent, I think. You know, he's got a, quite a strong Hungarian accent. So, um, It's Christopher Lee in, in a, in a low-cut dress and uh, high heels. <laughs> no, I'm not that sort of sexy. No, he's, he's rocking he's rocking his cape um, um. at this point. So, uh, so yeah, he's he's a really interesting, charismatic character, very charming and mm. um, you know quite quite sort of nice at the start, and then it all goes a bit wrong later on. But again, you get Peter Cushing um, for uh, for the first time playing Van Helsing, and this is a part he will play in many different variations. Um, so, Peter Cushing is basically the whole of the Van Helsing male line, really. How, how does how does Christopher Lee compare to Barnabas Collins, the, obviously the most sexy vampire oh, ever? He, yes, <laughs> Barnabas Collins is very sexy. Yeah. Barnabas just wins, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Christopher Lee is pretty close, I think. Mm, mm. Um, and you also get Michael Goff in this in this film and this that gives me a chance to mention my Michael Goff story you have one Michael Goff story Michael Goff story and that is I once served him I used to to work in um, a well-known supermarket or I still work for a well-known supermarket but it was in the um, town of Sherbourne in Mm. Dorset and Michael Goff came in with his wife and bought some gin and raspberries and the, the raspberries fell on the floor and had to be replaced with a new panet of raspberries um and then when he got to to the um, the chip and pin machine to pay, he couldn't remember what his pin number was, and his wife had to shout it across to him. Michael, <laughs> your pin numbers. So I, I sort of sat there going, "Oh God, I know what Michael Goff's pin number is." I mean, I couldn't. You could it have down. gone on a spending spree and gone. bought stuff under Michael Goff's name. I, could, I would have had to see his card, of course, which I wouldn't do. But he was he was very lovely, very twinkly, and very charming. And, he was uh, also. He told me oh, he was, was he Alfred. Was he Alfred? Alfred in the in Batman as well. So you know Alfred from. He was Batman. Yeah. Um, pin yeah. number two. Yes, it yeah. is. And the celestial <laughs> toy maker. Cut, cut yes. He's done many things. So, uh, but you also get in, in Dracula. You get George Woodbridge, who mm. is Mr. Pipkins. Mr. Pipkins, and he will be popping up again in some of the other Hammer Does films. Does he make any ratty old puppets at no. any point? No. no, I can't actually remember what he pay, plays in it, but he is in it. And um, is he a fat policeman? He's a fat policeman in the Mummy. All right, we'll be talking about the Mummy in a while. Mm. So, but yeah, both of those films are great fun i think out of the two i like dracula more because it was um christopher lee actually got to talk and he as i said he's very charming in it Mm. so so we do those two now and i will pass it over to you andrew to talk about some astronomy okay well i'm I'm going to involve you a bit with this paul Mm because i'd be interested to know what you know because um 
Shall I, I, I'll do that. I'll do it again. Uh, good evening and welcome to the Shy at Night. And tonight on the Shy at Night, we'll be, get, we'll be looking at the sky at night. <laughs> yeah, that's, okay. dread, that's dreadful, isn't it? Yes. That I is need a monocle oh, at this God, point. Okay. Before, I, I, I think I mentioned in passing about my four-incher when we did, um, we did the Chatterbox yeah. episode yes. recently. Yeah. And um, when I was uh, um, in my early teens... Um, I had a two and a half incher, mm-hmm. but now that I'm a grown man, I have a four incher, don't I, Lisa? You do, yes. Yeah. Um, but if I say that, Paul, what pops into your mind? Obviously, <laughs> Is it a, tel- rude? a telescope. Obviously, it's a telescope. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there are two sorts of telescopes, really. There's your refractor telescope, which is the one with lenses at either end which is like the sort of thing that Nelson would look out to ships at sea with. But not a four-incher. But, eh? But not a four-incher. He wouldn't have a... Uh, Nelson didn't have a four-incher, no. no. That would be too heavy. No, he'd need two sailors to carry it around. He'd need two sailors to carry his four-incher about. <laughs> but there's also a reflector telescope, which uh, uses mirrors and things like that. Um, but when you, buy, when you buy a telescope... Um, you you can spend ridiculous amounts of money on them, but uh, the one I got was just over two hundred quid. It was, I guess. Yes. But you could easily add a couple of zeros to the end of that if you if you were really if you were really daft. Um, but we, we live um, in in town, don't we? Now we, we do, get light yeah. pollution. We do. So the bigger your telescope, basically, the more you can see. So when I was when I was small, I lived in the country, so a two and a half incher was was quite adequate for my purposes. But now that we've got light pollution in the town, um, an extra inch or so really does make make the difference. But I'm saying this about the dimensions of it, and when I say a four inch telescope, it means it's four inches wide, not it's four inches long. So I'm talking about girth here. Mm. Um, its length is something like 660 millimetres, isn't it? Um, you, you've measure. never measured it, have I've you, never Lisa? I've measured it, no. Yeah. No. So it's like 100 millimetres wide and 600 millimetres long. But you can, you can get longer ones. And the longer your telescope, basically the more it magnifies. Because um, I've be got a couple of... Lo- you, peer, you have to be careful which end you peer down, surely. Well, you've got to look at the right end, absolutely. Otherwise, things look a long way away. Mm. Um, but I, when I bought my telescope, I got two eyepieces, and one of which is a 20mm eyepiece, and one of which is a 10mm eyepiece. Now, given that my telescope is 660 metres long, it's not 660 metres long. That would be enormous. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> now, it's 660 millimetres long. Mm. And if I use a 10 millimetre eyepiece, it's very simple to work out how much it will magnify. Because you take the first figure, 660, and you divide it by the second figure, 10, which gives you 66, which is the magnification. Hmm. And that's, that, that, that's a very nice, easy little calculation. Um, a 20 millimetre eyepiece will give you 660 divided by 20, which gives you 33. So there you go. That's how you work out your magnification of your telescope. Now, uh, Paul, have you ever actually handled a telescope in in, I think in, I have a, had in one. real life? I, 
think Sorry? I have had. I think I have had one in my hands before yeah. now and played with it a bit, but but not for a long time. Yeah, but um, if you, if I let you loose with my telescope, yeah. um, would you know what you were looking at in the sky? You know, uh, would you know? Would you be able to recognise any constellations? No, I've never been very good at that. Or even when I, you know, when, when you're sort of out out in the garden in the summer when it's uh, uh, and it's all very clear, and people are kind of going, "Oh, I can see the, you know, the plough or whatever," and and, yeah. and, and I, I can't see. It. It's a bit like um, those magic eye things, but real. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing. I, I, it's one of those things that if you just look at the sky, none of the constellations look pretty much like what they're supposed to be because mm. you say about the plough which is otherwise known as the big dipper mm. or it's well it's actually part of ursa major which is the great bear basic basically the the plough is the like the tail and the arse of the great bear because it's <laughs> the story is that the, the great bear was caught by its tail and thrown up into the sky which is why it's got a longer tail than a bear normally would have. Mm. But a lot of these, the famous constellations, um, date date back to the days of Claudius Ptolemy, who was a, a, a Greco-Roman astronomer um, born um, about 100 AD. No, no um, so you say a Gre- you said Greco, not Gecko. He wasn't a Gecko. No, no, he, he wasn't a Gecko. No, he, okay. he, he, was, he was a bit Grecian. Just like to be sure. Own. Yeah, just yeah. to be sure. Uh, but he lived all his time in Alexandra, Egypt, uh, until his death in 168 AD, and then he stopped living in Alexandra, Egypt, because mm. he was dead. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> but he he was his his work basically is the oldest surviving list of constellations. Uh, people had obviously sort of made up sort of constellations before that, but his is the earliest book that survives. Mm. Um, and so, so most of the famous ones you've heard of are, are down to him. Um, he he came up with 48 constellations. Uh, only 47 of them, of, of them survive now. Uh, and there's a story behind that. Because um, he did come up one, with one, Argo Narvis, the ship. Mm. Um, and that was a really big one. And people thought it was a bit unwieldy as... As, as constellations go, it just took up too much space. So it was decided to, to sort of cut up the ship into three bits. So instead of Argo Narvis the ship, uh, you've now got Carina, uh, Vila, and Puppis. So, so uh, Carina is the keel of the ship, Vila is the sails of the ship, and Puppis is the poop. As you know, every ship has a poop deck. Yeah. And so that's... If you look up in the sky, you can see a poop, basically. <laughs> yes, there you go. But when you come to, when you come to stars, um, have you ever noticed that stars are different colours? Not, not too much, no. But no. maybe that's more obvious through the... T- telescope yeah well it's it's the sort of thing that the telescope's rather good at showing Mm. um because obviously our nearest star is the sun but our sun is classified as a yellow dwarf you've heard of red dwarf the tv Mm. series but ours is sort of a, a middling star 
it, it's yellow um, but yellow stars come in dwarfs and giants because Capella is a giant star um, but yellow stars are about 5,000 to 6,000 degrees on their surface so if you stood on them you'd need you know you, you'd need a some ice cubes or something to keep yourself warm yeah. um, but cool stars are, are red ones they're about 2600 degrees C and as you get hotter you get you get red stars you get orange red you get orange you get yellow you get white and then you get blue white stars mm. and um, really really hot stars can be anything up to 80,000 degrees centigrade so yeah you really don't need to keep your coat on if you if you're visiting one of those uh, uh, sorry I have a question um, yes so um, you know how like in the Doctor Who title sequence particularly in the Peter Davison title sequence and you see yeah. lots of stars moving around and they form letters they form the letter was does that happen in nature that up, up there they're, they're Theoretic, theoretically, and that's, a very, that's actually an interesting question, there must be a point in the universe, because the universe is infinite, where if you stood, you could actually see the stars form the Doctor Who logo, mm-hmm. or at least in outline, in dots. Yeah. Because I say about constellations, and people say, well, you know, um, the Earth's a major looks like a plough or a, a plough or whatever mm. um, if you were to move through space and head towards those stars they would move at different rates because the mm. stars in the constellation are not necessarily joined up or close to each other it's just a line of sight thing so as you move through space uh, stars would change their position depending on how far you moved and sure statistically there must be a point at which some stars would form the outline of a word if you stood in the right place i have no Mm. idea where that would be in the universe but yes it's not as silly a question as you might think Mm. um paul can 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 i help can you help me with a little experiment yes sure have you got any pictures on your wall at the moment um or anything you can point at just point at a thing on the wall Okay. Okay. Tell me what you're pointing at. Uh, it's a calendar of, of David Bowie Camp. Uh, David Bowie calendar. Right. So shut one eye and yeah. point at a, and point at David Bowie. Right? Yeah. Keep your finger still and change to the other eye. Uh, uh, are you now pointing at something else? I'm pointing at a blank space of wall next to yes. David Bowie calendar. That's right. That's right. Because you have two eyes. <laughs> and they're a slight distance apart, right? Yeah. And you can use that method to measure how close close stars are. Because you could point your telescope at a star, mm. and then six months later, point it at the star again. The Earth will have moved all the way round in its orbit, mm. as though you, like your eyes have now moved like two two hundred million. Um, miles because mm. the, the sun's orbit is 93 million miles across um, from from the earth to the sun so in six months we'll have moved twice that distance so 
close stars will slightly change their position um, from those two six months periods. So yeah, if your eyes were 200 million miles apart and you did that same pointing trick, it wouldn't just be David Bowie that was moving, it would be the stars themselves that would ever so slightly move. So there, there's a there's a there's a good trick for measuring stars. And David Bowie's a star man as well, so it's funny. And he had he and he was a big star, wasn't he? Yeah, yes. a big star too. But there you go. There's a there's a few star things, and I'll come back and we'll talk about um, a specific constellation and stars in my next bit. But over to you. Back to you. Well, perhaps Paul's got something to talk about. Perhaps. Well, that's what I mean. Back to Paul. Yes, yes. Back to Paul. Uh, well, I'm going to talk about Sutton Park now, but I, I thought uh, that it was a good time to do it because 2022 is 30 years of Sutton Park, um, not until September, but uh, I thought I'd sort of just do a very brief history, m- more about sort of the different eras of the show. So I'll talk about the different years. and the, It sort of went on for about eight years, so I'll sort of um, do four. Uh, um, I, I might even put some, some clips, but um, I don't want to say too much at the moment because we're going to do a special episode about it but I can announce the same week as we are recording this I um well uh, come on then deals we're talking about Sutton Park you were in Sutton Park I don't even know you might have been in the the reboot you might have been you were here then come on come on come on don't just look at me I'm doing my bit now Doing my bit. Yeah. There we go. And that's it. Thank you. Um, yes, um, as you know, listeners, um, Nick has been digitising Sutton Park for from, from many years now, but there, there are some gaps. And he was uh, kept sort of um, nicely, kindly nagging me to just double check some places in my flat where these tapes might have been lurking and although I found one or two um, I wasn't finding the amount that we were expecting until this week when I was going through some things that had been in the cupboard and I found 24 tapes which uh, we haven't fully catalogued yet um, but um, which I hope will um, certainly fill most of the gaps it wasn't all Sutton Park tapes it was it was all sort of things from towards the end of the show, including sketches that I filmed in New York with my brother and um, a number of other other bits and pieces. But uh, anyway, we're going to do a proper episode about that um, with, with clips from those episodes uh, coming up soon-ish. But um, as, as far as Sutton Park is concerned, it began in 1992 and it began with the same time as I went up to university. And originally it was just going to be a, a sketch or a few sketches for... Uh, a series called Beaches Broadcasting, which I did, which was um, lots of sketches. Um, and this was going to be our spoof soap opera. And uh, the original story was going up to, well, for the first few months, for the first six months of university, my first and second term, uh, September 1992 to Easter 1993, uh, I was actually living very close to the actual Sutton Park, um, which which, for those of you who don't know, does actually exist. Uh, it's it's a, um, a large park near Sutton Coalfield. Well, actually, it borders a number of other um, sort of parts of Birmingham. And um, the original story, well, I hadn't really thought that I was... I 
now it's going to be doing 3,000 something episodes. Um, so the early plots are a little bit sort of, um, so, sort of definitely a lot more spoofy and um, basically that I was supposed to be exploring this place called Sutton Park, which uh, there were lots of rumours of, of nastiness going on. But um, I, I was also spending quite a lot of time with my friend David, who, le who lived down the road. And, um, but it soon became obvious that he didn't want to be in... He didn't like being in front of the camera, although we'd done things for him. We'd, um, we'd been in things that he had made. He wasn't that keen on being in front of the camera. So it quickly uh, turned out that, of course, that David had been kidnapped, spirited away by the evils of Sutton Park. Um, which uh, many of the evils of Sutton Park look very much like things that you might find in a in a in a Halloween store or um, or, or or a joke shop. But there we go. Um, so yes, things like uh, evil witches and um, uh, uh, jelly monsters all played a part in the early episodes. Um, and not every episode, of course, was set in. In, in Birmingham, I, I would come and go. I'd go and visit my parents. I'd go and visit um, London and see friends there and um, and ask for their assistance to help with the problems that I was finding in Sutton Park. And sometimes it didn't go too well. But um, by the Easter of 1993, I had to move accommodation. Um, and I moved to a different part of Birmingham where my friend Kerry, who was on my course, lived. And that's when he became involved in the show. And our friend Phil was also involved. Unfortunately, he'd been nobbled by some of the... I think by a dinosaur in Sutton Park and um, had come back as a zombie. But uh, we had to sort of integrate him back into society. And, um, and actually, another thing I should say about 1993 is that my video camera was broken for four months. So... I just started doing this series and was quite enjoying doing it, and then I didn't have a video camera for four months. So the show could have been um, axed uh, like very early on in the day, but uh, uh, I also had further problems later in the year when when the charger on my... I got my video camera back, but the charger played up, and so I, I could... I, I could um, only film inside when I was attached to the mains, but uh, that became a plot line as well. But, uh, of course, in summer holidays, um, in the summer of 1993, I, I did um, a long hike with my friend Andrew. I went to, I went to, to Jersey in the Channel Islands um, with my parents, and, and all sorts of stories came from that. And then I returned to university. Little did I know that uh, my friend Kerry, who I was still lodging with, although in a different house, was um, under the influence of Sutton Park, which often happened. Um, then in, uh, this continued into 1994, and for, uh, for the first three or four months, I was still based in Birmingham. But then, and, and by, by then we were sort of battling things like Azrael, who was a, a, an evil plastic spider, uh, but obviously that was just his representation. Um, he was, you know, he was almighty. And um, then around Easter '94, I came back to Salisbury uh, because I was doing a placement with my course and uh, hoping perhaps that Sutton Park's evil influence wouldn't follow me. But uh, but but it did. And for the rest of '94, I was based I was based in Salisbury. And um, that, which meant that 
a lot of a lot of the uh, uh, folk that um, that appear on the show today, such as Nick and Andrew and Lisa, uh, would be involved in storylines, uh, which often revolved around uh, some of the productions that Nick and I were were writing or working on, so sort of things things going on behind the scenes. Um, I, I, I would still keep contact with uh, Kerry or he would come to visit me or I would go and meet. Uh, so we would continue the story. I think we were we were quite um, bizarre. We were sort of um, influenced by things like the X-Files and government cover-ups and things like that. So um, the stories went along those lines. And then in 1995, when I returned to Birmingham for the last six months, it was all a sort of... Uh, Lots, lots of plot lines involving sort of trying to clear it all up before I finished at university, which, you know, very convenient. But, uh, uh, but um, it, obviously, it wasn't quite as easy as that, and it even resulted in in poor Kerry, um, well, being obliterated. Um, but uh, so I, I returned to to Salisbury, and the stories continued. And by this point, I'd met Cromarty and a number of other characters such as Gulliver Tremaine who, who's who been on the show and um, the adventures continued but uh, little did I know that when I did eventually get a job after university it would be back in um, in Birmingham again so I was back in Birmingham for six months from late 1995 into uh, again the Easter of 1996 and things continued but I didn't have my support network that I'd had when I'd been at university um, but uh, um, so eventually I you know you, you always thought you'd managed to vanquish the evils of Sutton Park but uh, it was not to be but I, I, I left Birmingham in, in Easter 96 thinking that uh, maybe I'd made some headway but uh, um, little was I to know that um, it was the start of a completely new era, but I'll, I'll tell you about that in the next section. But before we return to uh, Lisa and Andrew, let's have a little bit of a Sutton Park clip, and um, Cuthbert will let us know what what, uh, what what era it comes from. But uh, have a listen to this. Our Sutton Park clips this time are from around episode 800, which were recorded in March 1995. Please listen and enjoy. One day these clips may even appear on YouTube! Exclamation. Hi. Hmm. I don't really know where to start my research. I was hoping to find some sort of visitor centre or... Because this is, a, this is actually, an, actually a national park. It wasn't 100 years ago. I don't think, well, certainly not to the extent it is now. Um, anyway, I, I don't know what I'm hoping to find. Basically, I just wanted a day out. I'm, I'm going to the library tomorrow. I'm going to Sutton Coalfield Library tomorrow. Or certainly, if I can, later today, I don't know. Um, anyway, I was wondering. just found this place. I was wondering if uh, this was the pool where the murder was committed. Certainly looks very deep. Goodness knows what could have been done. From what I, I've, from what I've researched so far, um, the person that was murdered here was uh, 
I guess an innocent walker, a family, um, a child was murdered here and it, 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 it's awful to think. Um, I just don't understand the mind of a killer like this, it's just, apparently it was, from what Horn and I have researched so far, it seems like it was one of the first murders, not the first murder, that, that appears to have been elsewhere. Anyway, I'm moving on. I, I don't like. I, I don't like it here. Actually, probably wasn't. Probably wasn't such a good idea to come by myself. Um, I don't know. Uh, I better make a move. The hooked man is waiting. Waiting for something. Meanwhile, Paul has become scared of the area. Has become scared of the silence. And is returning to the bus stop. Meanwhile, though, in Sutton Park. Well, viewers, um, I, uh, I have a feeling that we're quite close to the tree, well, to Phil. Um, I have my device with me, and I should be able to hear what Phil's saying um, once I find the tree. Um, I would think, I would think that uh, he'll need some help, some assistance. Phil? Phil, is this you? Phil? Speak to me, it's Horner. Horner, it is I, Phil. Finally, I have talked to someone. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, Phil, I can hear you. Can I help you? No, listen, mate. Um, we weren't sure what was going to happen to you. We were worried. Um, you're inside the tree, yes? Um, I thought you were going to become a tree borg. You don't look particularly mobile. Can you walk? Um, do you need to be cut out of there? I can go and get some cutting tools, if that's what you wanted. I heard you crying out for me. I, I, I thought you needed help. Is that so? Oh, no. Oh, the cries you heard were cries of pain. But it's nothing now. Um, what happens is that I have grown this barky, uh, barky type of scales and, well, it's quite a painful process, but quite soon I should be breaking out of this tree and I will be a fully developed tree borg. Uh, so I don't actually need any help. Thanks very much. Um, thanks for coming to find me though. I could sense you in the park and I suppose I was psychically calling out to you really. Well, well I, I'm just glad that you're alright, that's all. I'm fine. It shouldn't be too much longer. If you can tell Paul that I'll, um, well, I'll contact him as soon as I'm out. I'll, I'll come and see him as soon as I've uh, fully developed, as it were. Oh, yes, certainly. Um, absolutely. I, I see. So that this tree is just like a sort of, uh, like a shell. It's like a um, chrysalis. Chrysalis. It's for a butterfly. Oh well, I'm glad you're all right. Um, I suppose it's better be getting back then. Um, yeah, as Horner chats, he does not see the small insect just crawling into his bag. Yeah, I, I see what you mean, Phil. I can see where the uh, I can see where the bark's cracking. You, you, I think you'll be, you'll be out of there pretty soon. Anyway, I'm glad you're all right. Um, shall tell Paul the good news and make my way home then. Uh, do do to do um, call in on us as soon as you're out. 
We want to see, make sure your back and everything. Okay. See you then, Phil. Thank you, Horner. Thank you, Horner. Thank you, Horner. Thank you. It should not be long now. Should not be long now. Should not be long now. I am changing. I am changing. I am changing. Soon I shall be free. 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 Good air. Oh, for goodness sake, thing. Akadeki. Right. And so Phil stands alone in the park, not in any danger as Horner feared, but actually on the road to recovery. Soon he will emerge as a tree borg, an indestructible fighting machine, just as long as no one sets fire to him. Uh, very clever, this tree borg business. All Phil's natural working parts replaced with wood. Yes, he uh, should be quite um, powerful, really. Oh dear, I must get back home. I keep feeling very strange though. I keep having those flashbacks. Uh, the gun firing, I'm, I'm sure Kevy is in trouble. Uh, I must warn him. I must, must get back to Paul though. Tell him the good news about Phil. <laughs> Damn those flashbacks. <laughs> Oh, most worrying, most worrying. Hiya Clive, how are you doing? Yeah, it's good news about Phil, isn't it? Yes, is a very good news about Phil, I must say. I'm very pleased to, that, um, well, I'm very, just very pleased that he's not in pain. When I started hearing, when I heard him screaming there in the park, I, I did worry, I did worry. But, of course, that was just part of the um, transformation process. Anyway, how did your research go? Hmm? My research, well, it, went, it was okay, it was all right. Um, there are a lot of records about Sutton Park in the library. Um, didn't have time to look through half of them, but uh, um, yeah, there was definitely, I think I learned a bit more about the Hookman and uh, there was some drowning in the park. I haven't quite got the full story. I'm going to have to go back if I can. Um, Father, I think the time is now, very soon. We should use the bomb very soon. Oh, oh. oh. oh no, what's wrong? Uh, nothing. I, I just hurt uh, as well. It was nothing. Oh, no, do you want some of your pills? What pills? Oh, um. um. Uh, where's that creature? 
Don't worry, Paul. I'll kill it. Back to Lisa okay. then. Okay, so the next film that um, I'm going to talk about is The Mummy from 1959. And um, surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, again, this stars Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And again, Christopher Lee doesn't get to talk in this film because he's playing the mummy. Um, so he just, he's sort of wrapped in bandages. Oh, no, he does actually get to talk a bit. He gets to talk a bit in the flashback. Not when he's the mummy, but before he gets to be the mummy, he's a, he's a priest and he does a little bit of, of chatting then. So, um, yeah, so he, he, he does actually get to speak a bit. But Peter Cushing is a young archaeologist, um, Though he's only young for the fact that his father's Felix Elmer, who is is quite old. Um, but, yeah, they, they find a tomb and they unearth the, the mummy in the tomb and then things start to go wrong. Uh, his father is um, has a, a medical incident. Um, I think he's, he's possibly had a heart attack or a stroke or something. Um, so they close the tomb off. Um, this is Peter Cushing and his uncle, who's played by Raymond Huntley, who will later go on to be in um, Upstairs, Downstairs. And they go back to England. Um, his father is in a, um, uh, a sort of institute of some kind. Um, and a few years later, once his, his father becomes a bit more like himself. Um, he tries to warn Peter Cushing that the the, the reason that he, he had this medical incident was because he was, there was a mummy that emerged from a secret compartment in the tomb and it tried to kill him because he was reading from the um, the Book of Life, reading this, this particular spell or whatever you want to call it that, that brought him back um, to life. So... So yeah, basically the whole film is about uh, the mummy trying to get revenge on the defilers of um, the tomb because it was the tomb of a princess and Christopher Lee was in love with that princess which is why he got turned into a mummy because he def- he tried to bring her back to life and um, she was she was sort of married to to the which he Egyptian god that she was priestess of. So, um, but and that film also features um, George Woodbridge again as a fat policeman. And uh, is there a song? There's no. a song about that. I know a fat policeman. Yeah, there's no song in it. Oh. Yeah, uh, and uh, Michael Ripper as a poacher. And this is the first time we will see Michael Ripper in a Hammer horror film, but not the last, because Michael Ripper's one of the um, Hammer repertory, who will pop up in various different things. Um, so you, you get Michael Ripper, you get George Woodbridge, you get um, Barbara Shelley in various things. And um, speaking of Barbara Shelley, she is she stars in the next film, which is The Gorgon from 1964. So we've moved into 
the well, not quite the swinging 60s yet because that's not till sort of later on in the 60s but we've moved into the 60s so you would think maybe that um the you know the censorship might not be quite so strict but um it still is so so basically um again peter cushing and christopher lee are in this film along with barbara shelley and uh richard pascoe and a certain patrick troughton two years before he becomes the second doctor and it's the story of a um a village in germany called vandorf which is being terrorized by a um a gorgon which is um, obviously a mythical creature from greece that um turns you to stone if you gaze upon them um or petrifies you in more ways than one uh and this is magara who's actually not a gorgon in greek myth she's a fury um but apparently there was a um figurehead of a ship that was a gorgon and the ship was called the magara so that's where the the writer of the um film got it from i think one of the misconceptions about gorgons is i think some people call medusas and think that they're but that's the name of a particular gorgon isn't it um it is, yeah, it's Medusa and there's two two other Gorgons mm. as well. Yeah, they were all, if I remember correctly, I can't quite remember the myth properly, but it's something like they were all beautiful women and they were punished by the gods, by probably by Zeus, because he liked doing stuff like that, I'm, uh, I'm, by making them into very ugly women that, as, as I say, turned people to stone if they were gazed upon. I, I, met um, a, I met a Gorgon once. She turned me into a stone during a birthday party of mine, but I got over it, it was fine. All oh, right. Okay. Oh, that's good. I mean, it can it can be reversed. There's been various different things, but so uh, in the in this film, it's it's not reversible. Um, so, but yeah, you've also got starring in this one uh, Michael Goodlish and um, Jack Watson and an ex ballerina called uh, Prudence Hyman who actually plays the Gorgon because Barbara Shelley um, turns into the Gorgon. On an every full moon and she wanted to do she wanted to be made up of the gorgon and she even said you know they could because obviously the thing about the gorgon gorgons are that they have snakes for hair which is always problematic because it never quite works properly um but barbara shelley said you know i she'd be quite happy to do it and they could put a headdress on her with little grass snakes in it uh, but they said no because it would take too long to do the makeup switches from uh, her part as uh, Carla to the Gorgon. So they got somebody else in to do it. And she was an ex-ballerina because they wanted somebody that could move gracefully and sort of look like they were floating, I guess. Um, so, and I, I mean, I wouldn't say that's that's not really... It's, I mean, it's... it's the posters tease it as a horror. Um but it's 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 more of a sort of tragedy, really, because it's the 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 two these two characters that love each other, and one ends up getting her head chopped off, and the other one turns to stone. So it's a bit of a tragedy, really. Um, and you've also got in this one that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee kind of swap roles. So Peter Cushing's the sort of I wouldn't say villain, but he's the the antihero of the piece. In the fact that he's he's got secrets and and he's a doctor and he's he's 
falsifying death certificates for people. And Christopher Lee is sort of the hero and he comes in as this professor. Um, but he's playing it a bit older than his actual age. So he's, he's quite heavily made up, which uh, I guess means that you don't sort of think, oh, that's, you know, that's Dracula playing that part because he looks quite different. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's quite a good film, quite a fun film. Again, directed by Terence Fisher, um, who is a sort of Hammer Films stalwart by this point and the last Hammer film that I've watched to date well I've actually watched that before these but the last one that I'm going to talk about today is Dracula AD 1972 which is uh, Hammer's attempt to bring the legend of Dracula into the then modern times and the reason I thought I'd I'd watch this one is because that's the year I was born 1972 and I thought it might be quite fun to see what kind of world it was like um and to be honest there's quite a lot of annoying people in it because there's the, this whole group of friends um who are friends with this this character called uh, Johnny Alucard which is Dracula backwards nobody works this out um but yeah basically um he brings Dracula back to life by sacrificing sacrificing one of the groups, played one of the group rather, played by um, Caroline Monroe, and he then goes on to try and uh, get um, Van Helsing's great the, the Van Helsing that he fought because it's the film starts with Van Helsing and Dracula fighting on a coach. Um, and Dracula gets staked by one of the spokes of the wheels uh, and then that particular Van Helsing dies and then we cut to 1972, which is almost 100 years later and it's his sort of great-grandson or his grandson and his granddaughter, who's played by Stephanie Beecham, um, is, is Christopher Lee wants to turn her into a vampire because that would be revenge on the Van Helsing family. But, you know, we've got a, a quite an interesting cast because you've also got Christopher Neem as, as the aforementioned Johnny Alucard um, and Michael Coles as a policeman, uh, Marsha Hunt as one of the group and a very young Michael Kitchen with lots of hair. But quite frankly, they're all very annoying and they quite deserve to be turned into vampires, a lot of them. I've just remembered, Lisa, there's an episode of Crown Court. Yeah. The Death of Dracula. Yes, there is, yes. Uh, and the bloke in that is playing, uh, was it Count Alucard or something? Yes. That, that's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is, yeah. as you said, Dracula backwards. But, yeah, so. but that's I think that's a couple of years after this. Yeah. So, but yes, I mean, obviously that's just because you, you don't want to use... I mean, I think Dracula by this point was probably... Um, in public, the public domain. Yeah, but I would point out that it, the Crown Court episode, he's not a real vampire. No, he's not. Though that would have been more interesting. It might have it's been, still yeah. a, it's still a good, good yes. story. It's a very fun story. It's one to seek out if you if yeah. if you fancy a weird a Crown weird Court, Crown Court yeah. which of which there are a few. Yeah. So I do like yes. um, I do like Dracula stories set in well in the time they were made, even though now that's a long time ago. Um, uh, but um, 
the, the, what, what, there's another one around the same time with Joanna Lumley. Is that, does that come before yeah. this one or after that one? That, I can't that comes after what, that one. That's the last film in which Christopher mm. Lee plays Dracula. That's the Satanic Rites of Dracula. Yes. And um, again, that's uh, Peter Cushing as, as the same Van Helsing character as in um, uh, Dracula AD 72. Yeah. And Joanna Lumley's playing the part that Stephanie Beecham played. So she's his granddaughter. Uh, but yeah, William Franklin's in that one. So we've been watching a bit of William Franklin mm. recently. So, um, But yeah, I've not watched that one yet, but I do have a poster of it, actually. But yeah, that's on the pile to watch. I'm going to work my way through the Draculas in order of, mm. ha- uh, of when they were released. It's, so. it's funny, I was thinking, I mentioned Barnabas Collins, and obviously in the same way as Doctor Who sort of dips into famous characters or do, do, do their own versions of, like, Frankenstein's monster and, uh, uh, and Dark Shadows did the same thing, but they didn't... They never actually did... Well, they certainly didn't do a Gorgon. They did a, they did a Phoenix, um, mm. um, and they did a... Uh, they, they never did a Mummy, although there was a Dark Shadows novel which involved the Mummy. I'm surprised they never did a Mummy, really, but perhaps it was just... They just no one would be wrapped up in bandages or something. I don't know. Um, it probably would have taken too long to do yeah. to wrap somebody up in all those bandages. Yeah, I mean we had a we had a mummy on Sutton Park, but that was we had that was a bit of a cheat because it was uh, a glove. <laughs> you never saw the best. Oh, well, there was a mask. Oh, it was more than a glove. It was it was an arm, wasn't it? It, was, yes, it had yeah. a bit of wrist on it. So yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Morden mummy. But, uh, uh, well, well. Uh, Thank you for that. Is it, do you have more, any more to add, or is that...? I, I, I do have more, but I will let somebody else talk for a bit, and then we'll talk, I will talk about some other horror films from the 70s yeah. that I've watched. So, OK, this, this will be my final bit, but it might get a little involved, so I need Lisa to hold this. Oh, OK, hang on. Because I'm going to be cross-referencing I've books here. I've got a cat here, as well, which makes You've life a little laughing. bit more difficult. But um, I should point out, Paul, that I'm using lots of reference books here. I'm using the Guinness Book of Astronomy Facts and Feats by Patrick Moore, the Observer's Book of Astronomy by Patrick Moore, the Constellations Handbook by Galactic Hunter, and A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Impostors by Giles Sparrow, which I got that for Christmas. Okay. No, I bought it. I bought it because I saw him on Only Connect. Oh, you saw him on. Oh, he was on Only Connect. Yeah. All right. And okay. I looked it. I I I followed him on Twitter, and it said he'd written this book, and I thought you'd be interested in it. So. I am. But right, we'll concentrate on Ursa Major because we talked about it. But a lot of these star uh, star groups constellations have got uh, mythology associated with them. You're right there, Lisa. <laughs> Sorry, the wires are getting the caught wires up. Are getting caught. So Ursa Major, and I will quote from Patrick Moore here, mythologically represents Callisto, daughter of King Lycaon of Arcadia. That's the second city of Gallifrey, isn't it? Arcadia? Yeah. yeah. Um, her Arcadia beauty surpassed that of Juno. Nothing to do with Terry and Juno. No. Which so infuriated the goddess that she changed Callisto into a bear. Years later, Callisto's son, Arcas found the bear whilst out hunting and was about, was about to shoot it when Jupiter intervened, swim, swinging, not swimming, swinging, <laughs> swinging both Callisto and Arcas into the sky. Arcas was also transformed into a bear at that point. 
So Callisto is Ursa Major and Arcas is Ursa Minor. Uh, the sudden jolt explains why both both bears in the sky have have stretched out tails. Right. Because they were swung up by their tails. Okay. So don't go around swinging up bears by no. their tails. That's not very um, fair. But Ursa, Ursa Major, or the Big Dipper part of it, actually points to the pole star. So you've got a sort of handly bit and then a sort of dippery bit, like a sort of saucepan. Mm-hmm. And the bit where you pour out from the end of the saucepan, there's two stars, sort of one above and one below. And if you draw a straight line between them, it points up to the pole star, which is the star around which all the the, the stars in the sky rotate as the Earth turns. But a lot of stars in Ursa Major have got names, and I bet you you've probably never heard of most of them. You've got stars called Muskeeda, Tatsun, Talita, Merak, Dubi. That's um, Frank Sinatra, isn't it? Dubi, Dubi, Dubi. <laughs> yes. Alkafzaz, Fad, Megrez, Alioth, Alcade. Uh, two stars called Tanya. Okay. <laughs> There's Tanya Borealis and Tanya Australis. Okay. Two stars called Alula. Right. Alula Australis and Alula Borealis. And the ones I want to look at now, Mizar and Alcor. Mm-hmm. Now, I said about the tail of the bear, uh, Mizar is like the second star of the tail. So you've got you've got the, the tip of the tail, mm-hmm. and you go up a little bit, and you've got Mizar. And uh, right next to Mizar, mm-hmm. if you've got good eyesight, you should see another star, Alcor. Mm-hmm. Um, now, stars stars often come in pairs, or like or, policemen. Like police, that's exactly what it says here. <laughs> stars like policemen come in pairs. Um, now, some of the time, that's just a random placement that two stars happen to look like they're next to each other, but some of the time it is because they're actually sort of rotating around each other or are close or are part of a cluster. So, I mean, it's that thing about, you know, um, those those are small and those are far away. And the same thing applies with stars. They they may be associated or they may not be. And it just depends on where you're standing in the universe, whether they look close or not. But Mizar is the fifth brightest star in the Great Bear. At magnitude 2.2. Stars come in magnitudes. So uh, a bright star has magnitude 1. A a fainter star is magnitude 2. All the way down. And probably the faintest star you can see is probably about magnitude 6, depending on your eyesight. Mm -hmm. Um, If you've got a 4-incher like me, I I can see all the way down to magnitude 10. So I can see stars in my telescope that you can't see. Um with your naked eye. And Mizar is actually quite a good um test of your telescope um when you first sort of use it. So as I said, if you look at Mizar, you can see Alcor just a bit to the left of it if you've got decent eyesight. If you can't see it um with your eyes, um binoculars will show that really well. I mean people forget about how good binoculars are actually because people sometimes obsess about buying a telescope mm-hmm. uh, but I've, I use a telescope and I also use binoculars and I often 
will set up the telescope, look at things, then rush indoors and get my binoculars as well, won't yes, I, Lisa? Leaving will. the door open and yep. letting all the heat out. Letting all the, co- yeah, all the cold in and the heat yeah. out. Because yeah. the thing about a telescope is that you've only got a very sort of narrow field of view. So when you're trying to zoom in on something, it helps to know what all the stuff around it is, which is where the binoculars come in. And they just just give you things to sort of sight on. But yeah, if you look at Mizar through binoculars, you'll see Alcor quite easily. But you'll see uh, a fainter star, which is known as HD 116798 of magnitude 7.6, so you can't see it with your naked eye, but it's known as Ludwig's star. Now, I don't know if you remember Ludwig, Paul. He was a little mechanical egg in a cartoon. Yes, I do, Uh, yes. You do. Well, it's not named after him. (laughs) Um, It was discovered by the German astronomer Johann George Liebknecht in 1772. He thought it was a new planet, which it wasn't. But he named he named the star after his patron, so they had Patreon in those days. Because <laughs> you've got Patreon, haven't you, Paul? You better plug that. Yes, I do. Yes. Yes. So he named it after his patron, the Landgrave Ludwig of Hesse Darmstadt. That's a good title, isn't it? <laughs> so it's known as Ludwig Star. Um, but yeah, actually, Ludwig Star is nothing really to do with this. It just happens to be. It looks like it's. It's in the middle of them, but it's not really. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, zoom in on Mizar with your telescope and you'll notice there's something wrong with Mizar. And it might look blurry, or if you've got a decent magnification on it, you'll realise that Mizar itself has got another little star next to it. And I got all excited when I found that. And I came you in did. and I went, I've split Mizar, I've split Mizar. <laughs> and I was all excited because that's the first time I've ever seen uh, the little star that's next to Mizar. That rhymes. Okay. It, it was a little star. It was next to Mizar. Yeah. Um, it was first spotted by ben- Benedetto Castelli, who was a Benedictine monk and mathematician. I always said I wouldn't mind being a monk, didn't I, Lisa? Yeah. I, I could deal with a lot, not having to deal with people. It's just like all the other bits of being a monk that I probably couldn't deal with. Yeah. But he was a friend of Galileo. And he was one of Galileo's allies when he had a spot of bother with the Pope. Mm. Um, he He wrote to Galileo in 1617 saying, Have a look at Mizar. It's one of the most beautiful things in the sky. So yeah, that that's that's quite a good sort of um, test of your of your early days playing with the telescope. Is can uh, you see that Mizar is two stars? Can I can I ask a question, please? You can ask. Um, I think you may I think you may have answered. Um, uh, it, but I just wanted to double check. When when you get your four incher out, do you, do you stick yeah. it out the window or do you go out into the garden with it? Well, I I, I go out in the in the back garden. Mm. Um, yeah, if you if you stick your four inch out of a window, you could um, you won't get very good seeing because um, the the heat from your house will mm. wobble in front of the uh, the lens and you'll uh. get a wobbly picture. So you need to take your telescope out into the garden mm. and have it sort of acclimatized to the temperature out there. Yeah. Um, so Patrick Moore, for instance, had had. had 
various sizes in his garden. Sometimes mm. he had a five incher, but mm. sometimes he, he'd have one that was like twelve inches. So you Gosh, know, I bet he, the, yeah. the neighbours used to applaud that. Well, well, yes, he used to get lots of visitors of an evening wanting to have a go on his twelve incher. Mm. Mm. Um, but um, the thing about Mizar and its companion star is that that's not the end of the story. Um, now, you know street lights. Y- you've got street lights, haven't you? You live you live in the street. We, we do. So and so. yeah, sort of. And you, you get sodium street lights, or you used to anyway, mm. which were yellowy orange in colour. Mm-hmm. So that's that, that classic sort of street light colour, and that that's caused because they've got sodium in the in the actual in the actual light now. The same applies um, to the light from stars. That you know the the thing that um, if you take a prism and you split white light, you get the rainbow of colours, right? So you you can make a rainbow from white light. So you got red, orange, yellow, green, blue, mm. indigo, violet. I can never tell the difference between indigo and violet, but mm. in the adventure game, it's Richard of York gave battle in vain, isn't mm-hmm. it? But if you look at the light from the sun or a star, if you look really closely, you'll find that it's got little black lines across it in various places. And those little lines in the spectrum of a star show you what the elements in the star are. So sodium has a little line in the sort of yellowy-orange band, right? Mm. And different elements have different bands calcium i believe has got a line in the sort of indigo violet end right so that, that's that's fine but you can use that to tell you things about the stars that you're looking at it will tell you what the elements in the star are because it'll have lots of different lines for all the different elements but you know um when you hear an ambul- an ambulance or a police car going past mm. Um, you can hear the shift in tone of the sound of the siren. Mm-hmm. Like if it comes towards you and then goes away, it'll go, Nina, 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 Nina. Yeah, it will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's due to the Doppler shift of the sound. As the sound waves are compressed, so it sounds higher when it's coming towards you. And then stretched out so it sounds lower pitched when it's going away from you, right? Well, mm. the same thing happens with the st- with starlight. If a star happened to be coming towards you, the light would shift towards the blue end of the spectrum. And if the star is going away from you, it will shift to the red end of the spectrum. So all those little spectral lines for the elements will move about a little bit. Um, now, if you've got two stars orbiting round each other... Um, sometimes those lines can split into two. So where you had one sodium or calcium line, it could split into two as the stars are rotating round each other and one star's coming towards you and the other star's going away from you at the same time as they rotate. Mm. And if you look at the um, spectrum for Mizar and Mizar's little companion that you can see in your telescope 
both of those are what are known as spectroscopic binaries. So in the telescope, it looks like two stars. But if you were actually to visit them, you'd see it was four stars. So, yeah, what you started off thinking of as one star is actually four. If you use the most modern sort of techniques of looking at it. And funnily enough, Alcor, the other star by Mizar, is almost certainly a double as well. So you look up at the sky, you might see one star or possibly two. You use a telescope and you add another star to that. Then you use spectral bits and bobs and you've actually ended up with a whole load of stars all in roughly the same place. So, yeah, the, the more techniques you, le- you use, the more things you, uh, you start to see. So there you go. So that's Mizar. In, so well worth a look. Mizar and Alcor and Mizar B and all the other ones you won't see, but they are there. <laughs> and we know, we know that. Okay. That'll Thank do for you. me, I think. Okay. Thank you very much. So I got as far as 1996. And um, now the reason I stopped in the middle of the year was because um, I, I knew at this point that I, other than the occasional visit, I would not be returning to Sutton Park. And I moved to Surrey, which is where I, I live now. Now, um, there, there was a, a change... There was a, a an event that occurred that, uh, um, that that meant that we discovered that Sutton Park had just been a tiny part of a planet of Sutton, called Sutton Park, and and when it exploded, all the debris from the planet of Sutton Park was spread across the the, the uh, spread across Earth. So it wasn't just Sutton Park in Birmingham uh, that uh, we should be afraid of. It was pretty much any woodland. Um, any large park area was probably part of the planet of Sutton Park. Very scientifically accurate, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure Andrew will let us know about that. Um, but uh, as it happened, I moved to Surrey and I was living right across the road from a large area of woodland which would have been part of the planet. So, uh, I, although I was meeting new people such as Callum, um, I was still spending a lot of time uh, with. Um, with all of of, of the the Salisbury regulars, and uh, we continued to things were going on behind the scenes of various different productions, film productions we were making. But one of the one of the key things that happened in in early nineteen ninety seven was that I was introduced to a gentleman called Basil, who and I, I know that some of these clips have appeared on the show relatively recently. Uh, in the house that I was living in, um, one day I woke up and found that um, um, most of my most of the people who lived in my house were no longer alive. And uh, I, I, at the time, I couldn't remember what had gone on. And so, um, a, a stranger to me, um, Basil, um, not only did he promise to uh, prove that I was not uh, guilty of of any crime but promised to help me. But uh, as it turned out, Basil was a very difficult character to make sense of in that you couldn't tell whose side he was on and he could switch sides. And he, he, was, he was a very important character to, 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 to have met uh, because um, 
because of, 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 you know, you weren't quite sure where his loyalties were. And um, uh, so eventually I, I left uh, that particular part of Surrey and moved to Woking and lived in a different house. But even so, all of my problems uh, were, not, were not over. And by now we had problems with the controller, um, who, of course, we've had problems with on the Charlotte podcast. But this was a different, uh, a different controller, but the same post. At the time, we didn't really know that this. You know, it was only it's only been during the Charlotte podcast era we've realised that the controller is a position and different people take over it. Um, so it's yeah. So, but, but that's when we first became um, familiar with this this character who was very much keen on, you know, ratings and uh, where, where we, where we was it real life, was it a show, was it, uh, you know, where, where did reality sit? And, uh, and really the controller was a problem until the, the very end of the show and obviously we had many plot lines and I was still supported by Cromarty and a lot of... Uh, a lot of the plot lines that you hear about on the Charlotte podcast, uh, including poor old Cromarty's um, association with vampires, uh, dates back to that sort of period. You know, of course, we were we were travelling. Uh, we we filmed overseas. We filmed in Paris. We filmed in Lanzarote, um, and we filmed in New York. And um, towards the end of the show. Uh, in 2000, we, we visited New York and we visited uh, Las Vegas and uh, we were almost hoping to turn all the bad things that the controller had done to our advantage by trying to sell the rights of the story uh, uh, to, to, to Hollywood. But uh, um, in the end, I think, you know, the filming sort of petered out and we realised that the controller couldn't be overcome and the best way of defeating him would be to sort of fade away into our own separate lives and uh, not to be um, affected by him. And, you know, the story continues. We did we did uh, return in the early 2010s for, for uh, uh, to, to update the story and, of course, the stories of, from Sutton Park, um, they, they are you know, off very much part of the Charlotte podcast. But uh, that's pretty much what I want to say now. But that sort of sort of shows... It's very difficult sometimes, obviously. We put clips on the show uh, out of order and or just because they've got particular people involved in them. And uh, But what we've been talking about today has been more the chronology um, of the original uh, Sutton Park. And I'm going to share with you another clip now and then... We'll return because I think Lisa has uh, just a few more things to say before we finish. Have a listen to this clip and and Cuthbert will tell us from which era it comes from. Our second Southern Park clip is from the same period as our first, around episode 800 from March 1995. Enjoy and then we shall return to Lisa for the last of her film's discussions. Dead. Paul? 
Angus Clive, you go to the pool. Where's it gone? Oh, where's it gone? It's gone. Oh dear. Oh, oh dear. Hello? Where's it gone? It's gone. Gone, it's escaped. Oh damn. Um. Oh dear. Clive. Clive, how is he? How is Paul? What, what are you doing on his head? Oh, I see. You're sucking the poison out. Well, I hope that's what you're doing. What am I doing? Clive? Clive, you're... Oh, God. Clive. Clive? Clive. Something bit me, didn't it? Feel a bite there. On my arm. Fine. What did you do to me? You sucked the poison out. Oh, thank you. Where did that insect come from? Where did that creature come from? Uh, I think that might be my fault, Paul. Um, it might have come in my baggage when I came back from the park. All oh, right. Thank you, Clive. Thank you. Oh, uh, yes, I must apologise for that, Paul. It's quite possible that whilst I was whilst I was seeing Phil, I I, I could have, I could have caught in my bag. Um, you feel better now. Obviously, got a poisonous bite. It gave you quite a bad reaction, but Clive seems to have done the job. Did a very good job. Done a much, I feel much better. Oh, I'm very glad. Very glad indeed. Oh dear, oh dear. I don't like using that gun one bit. I keep getting very strange flashbacks from it. it didn't affect me like it affected you. But uh, every time I touch it, I keep seeing horrible flashbacks and it, I don't like it at all. No, 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 another one of those flashbacks. It, well, not exactly a flashback. I, I keep seeing something, uh, something with Kerry. And look, don't worry. Look, we'll see Kerry later. It's early at the moment. It's only just nine o'clock. Nine thirty. Nine thirty. Yes. Yes. All right. All right. We'll go and see him later. Yes. Yes. We will go and see him later, Horner. If he's not in. He's not in. You know what he's doing at the moment. He's trying to keep away from people. Yes. Yeah. You're, sure, you're sure he's okay? Yes, of course you do. Of course he's alright. I noticed I have these flashbacks. This is that damn gun. Do you want to go down to the kitchen and get something to eat? Oh, yes. That, that, oh, that would be very nice. Yes. Can I, can I um, um, raid your fridge? Yes, you can raid my fridge. Oh, good. Right. Come on, then. <laughs> Come on, Paul. Where do you keep all this nice food then, Paul? In here. Ooh, lovely. Just don't eat it all, all right? Oh dear. It's as if he's never eaten. They are not here. They're downstairs. Father, it is time. We must do our plan now. It's the best time for us to do so. Yes, sir. Yes. And with this magic twizzle stick which I nicked off Katrina Hortensia, we can freeze time so that no one in this room will know what we are doing. 
Ding! There, it's worked. You noticed that, didn't you, viewers? How everything's changed and no one can see us. We can see no one. Pretty body. No one at all. Come along, Simon. Come along. Father, father, have you got the fuse? Yes, you have. Oh, good. Once the door is open and the people return, the fuse will be lit, won't it, father? And then the bomb will go off pretty quickly like man. Well, after that is, but the poisonous fumes have choked them a bit first. Yes, yes, yes. The fuse is set. Now all we need to do is light the ignition. The door will open. Oh yes. And they'll all die. <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, the evil George and Gavin plan their Machiavellian nastiness of planning type thing. Yes. Anyway, as they do their planning, and meanwhile, as Paul and Horner eat lots of things in the uh, in the fridge, from the fridge. Yes, I'll get it right in a minute. <coughs> By the way, have you noticed that it's episode 800? Yes, it is. That means 800 episodes. Yes, it does. Almost as mind-numbingly boring as some of the things that are on this television at the moment. Oh, it's EastEnders. What, do I, what am I talking about? Anyway, um... Yes, I'll start again. Right, starting again. <coughs> Meanwhile, as Gavin and George, the evil Gavin and George, as they prepare their nasty plan, and as Paul and Horner eat things from the fridge, meanwhile, in Sutton Park, some nasty things are happening. Well, actually, they're not too nasty, but they're different, and... Oh, God, just go and see them in there, I don't care. Yes. Oh, God. Yes. Yes. Things are happening in Sutton Park. That's right. Things. Man, where are you? I meet you. Come. How can I help you? I am your friend. Come, speak with me. Oh, it is good. I meet you. Now I help you. Where are they, father? Where are they? I'm looking forward to them being blown to bits with and being coughed by, by lots of poisonous gas. Where are they? Do not be so impatient, son. They will be here. It has not been long yet. Be patient. As soon as they come in and the gas starts pouring out, we must abandon. We must leave and watch from a vantage point. Have you got the gas masks? Uh, oh yes, I think so. Uh, well, I've got to carry a bag. We can still carry a bag on heads. Oh, great. Oh, that, that'll be nice, yes. 
carrier bags. They don't have carrier bags from from S and M, not M and Smith. Oh. Yes. Hi viewers. Hi, I'm just going upstairs. Horn is going to check on Kerry, just to see if he's around. Won't be long, Paul. Oh dear. No sign of him. Oh dear, this is most worrying. It's confusing. Simon? What are you doing? What's that stuck inside you? I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like some sort of pawn in it's some sort of silly game. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, ignorant peasant. Now is the time. Now. Simon, what are you doing? What's happening? I, I don't understand what's going on. This is so strange. So, this smoke. There's smoke! It's, what's going It's... Oh my head! <coughs> father! You should be stronger! You should be stronger, Father! No! No, Gavin! The plan is working! This is the way it should have been! <laughs> Paul? Paul? Did... <sighs> Paul? I can hear me, he's in there. <sighs> Door's locked, he might be in. Paul? Oh dear. Uh, I'm getting for the. Oh dear. Uh, uh, get into the cupboard. Um, yeah, this one, yes. Uh, it's all smoke. My God, there's smoke. That's everywhere. God. Window is open. Window is open. So, um, Lisa, uh, before we go, I, I think you have, I think you have a few more things to say just to finish us off uh, before mm. the end of the show. Yes, I do. No, actually, I just want to dive here, dive in here for two seconds, Paul. Mm -hmm. um, who was the character Cleo in Sutton Park? Cleo was, she was a, a, a sort of bird. Yeah, um, yeah. She she was uh, a bird who who was sort of very matronly um, and was always looking. She, she sort of looked after us. Yeah, yeah. The reason I ask is that the name Cleo actually links me to the star Alcor, which I was mm -hmm. talking about. Um, mm -hmm. I was saying about how Mizar was discovered mm -hmm. as a multiple system using 
spectroscopic lines. Mm. Um, Alcor, its companion, was discovered uh, using a highly sensitive infrared camera called Clio. <laughs> um, it was looking at the longer wavelengths of radiation em- emitted by cool objects. Mm. And very close to Alcor, on 129 exposures, was a faint red dwarf companion star to Alcor. So that's how... So Clio actually discovered uh, the companion to Alcor. So <laughs> I bet you didn't know that about her. No, I didn't know. She, she, she kept that under her wing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyway, back to Lisa. Sorry about that. That's all right. No, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Right, so I just have a few more... About four more quick... Um, t- talk about the other horror films that I've, I've watched. Um, one of which is Amicus's production of The House That Dripped Blood, mm. which was made in 1970 but released in 1971. And mm. the reason I say it was made in 1970 is one of the stars in that is John Pertwee, yeah. who had just completed his first season as the third Doctor, mm. and he's playing um, a horror actor... And in the scene set in his dressing room, there are lots of photos of him. And they don't go in too closely on these photos, but apparently one of these photos is John Pertwee driving Bessie uh-huh. from his first series of Doctor Who. So. Well, I was never quite sure when, you know, the timings or whether it was made just before. So that's that clarifies that, yeah. I didn't realise it was made between seasons. So it's in between season in seven between, and eight, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because I think... Um, season seven starts filming in 1969, doesn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the House of Blood is an um, anthology or portmanteau film, which means it has a linking story, but it's uh, four individual shorter films. And you've been in films like that. I have been in films like that. Yes. With Paul. With yeah. Paul. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I have experience of that. But The House of the Trip Blood is one of Amicus's better offerings, um, along with uh, a, a one from the 60s with Peter Cushing in called, um, I believe, Dr. Terror's House of Horror. If that's not, 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 not to be confused with Dr. Terrible's House of Horrible, no. which starred mm-hmm. Steve, Steve Coogan. Coogan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. which was obviously... A piss take a, of that. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, um, the framing story to this film is that a famous film star has gone missing and the famous film star is none other than John Pertwee. Um, so a policeman is sent from Scotland Yard and the policeman is played by John Bennett um, and he's sent down to the country to the area where the, the film star was living to, to try and find out what's gone on. So he goes to the local police station and sees the, the local sergeant played by John Malcolm who is the nice German policeman in Enemy at the Door. And they basically tells him that he he went to live in this house in the area, but this house has got a bit of a history and lots of nasty things have happened to previous tenants of this house. So you basically get each of the four films is the story of one of the tenants. And we start with... um, uh, the first film, which stars uh, Denham Elliott as an author, and this is called Method for Murder. And he and his wife, played by, um, I think it's the second Mrs. Van der Volk, Joanna Durham, um, hire this house or rent this house 
so that he because he because he can't write in London. There's too many distractions. So he goes to he goes to live in this house and he's doing really well writing his book and it's all going marvelously. And then he starts to see one of the characters on the murderer because he writes he writes horror books, murder sort of stories, um, and he starts to see one of his characters come to life in front of his eyes. And he's this sort of strangler, strangler, strangler. <laughs> called is that, is that uh, Damien? Is that is that is he called Damien or something? Yeah. No, he's, he's called Dominic. Oh, Dominic. Um, yeah, well, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. No. Do- Dominic with a K. So at the end, um, yeah, and he starts to keep. He sees, see, he see, keeps seeing him in the house and outside in the garden. And at one point. Um, strangling trying to strangle his wife and he's previously seen a psychiatrist because he thinks that the stresses and strains are getting too much for him but after he sees this this character uh strangling his wife and he, he she's in the kitchen and he goes to the kitchen and she his wife tells him it wasn't it wasn't him it was you and she says that they should call the doctor and he goes to see him and while he's talking to the doctor this this um, character appears and strangles the doctor and kills him, and and then you sort of cut away and you go back to to the house and you find out it's all been a plot by his wife and this this other chap who's an actor who's playing the character to drive her husband mad so that they can have him sort of committed to an asylum and run off with his money. But then she gets a phone call to say that both the, the the psychiatrist and her husband have been killed, have been strangled, and she realizes then that something awful has happened and something's gone dreadfully wrong, and the actor has as manifested as the character, and he he strangles her, and that that's the the end of the sort of the first film. Uh, we then cut back to the sort of the John Bennett section, and basically it follows. These four different characters. So you get Peter Cushing in the next one, who uh, who high, um, rents the house because he's just retired from a job in the city. And whilst he's exploring the near, nearby town, he finds a wax museum. And in this wax museum is a is a waxwork model of um, a, a woman who looks very much like a woman that he used to know. And. He, he finds himself wanting to go back, but he, he tries not to. And then he's, an old friend comes to visit him, who's played by Joss Ackland, and he was also in love with this woman. And he goes to the wax museum and becomes obsessed with the waxwork. And it turns out that it's not actually a waxwork. It's the a body of the waxwork proprietor's wife who was executed for murder and he basically they let her, let him have the body, and he, he encased the body in wax, and so that he could keep her for himself. And but men are attracted to her still, so um, all the men that are attracted to her, he ends up killing. So basically, you end the film with Peter Cushing's head on a tray because she's Salome, um, who obviously had John the Baptist's head, not necessarily on a tray, but anyway. So the third film has got Christopher Lee in. And he he goes to live in the country with his his young daughter, and there's there's a wonderful s- scene at the start where he's being shown round by the letting agent who's played by John Bryan's, and obviously Christopher Lee's very tall, 
and then he calls this little girl in and she's absolutely tiny and it's this sort of wonderful sort of difference between the two the sort of the, the height of him and, and the and the child and um, he hires a tutor for her because he doesn't want her going to school and he seems like he, he you know he doesn't love the child and, and the tutor wants to know why he doesn't love the child is it because when his wife his wife died when he she brought the the child, you know the little girl into the world and he says no she was he was glad his wife died and it turns out his wife was a witch and he, that he's worried that the child's going to be a witch and she because she he's quite cold to her and quite mean to her because he's he's frightened of her she makes a wax doll of him and sticks pins in it um and gives him a sort of heart attack um and then she throws the doll on the fire and that's that's what happens to his character and then the next the next character we get along is is John Pertwee's character who is as I say a famous film actor and he spent his career playing vampires and he he you know he's he's doing this sort of fairly low budget film and um is disgusted by everything the sets and the costumes so he goes to the town and he get he finds this little antique shop which is run by Jeffrey Bowden who gives him or sells him a, a cloak, and when he wears this cloak, he gets he goes a bit peculiar, <laughs> um, and we do get a bit of of hurt with face pulling at this point, and he he basically t- starts to turn into a vampire, and it it turns it turns out that that the, the vampire community has been so impressed by the way he's played vampires all these years, they want him to become a vampire. He gets to join the club. He gets to join the club, yeah. So they send Ingrid Pitt and her attributes um, to lure him in. And so, and then he comes back to the sort of the framing story and John Bennett decides, as the policeman, to go to the house and the, the sort of... The policeman says to him, I, you know, oh, sorry, the letting agent says to him, I advise you don't, you don't go at night time, you should go in, in the morning. But he goes and he finds um, John Pertwee in a coffin and he stakes him and then Ingrid Pitt appears and and she kills him and that's the end of the film. So what it's, noise it's, does she make when she rises she, she up? She sort of goes, wee! She puts the cloak on and floats in the air. <laughs> and she goes, she goes for a wee, doesn't she? She does go for a wee. Can I point out that John Pertwee does actually appear as a vampire in 321? Yes, he does. There's an addition of 321 yes. with Pertwee as a vampire. Yes. Not as a contestant. No, but as, as one of the turns. Yeah. So that, that That's his <laughs> act. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So there are three more films, and I'll be very quick because I appreciate I, I probably went into too much detail on that last one. But and these are all Vincent Price films, and Vincent Price is absolutely wonderful in all of these. And you've got two Dr. Fibes films, which is The Abominable Dr. Fibes from 1971 and Dr. Fibes Rises Again from 1972. And basically in, in The Abominable Dr. Fibes, he's taking revenge on all the doctors that operated on his beloved wife. And, and she died while she was on the operating table. So he kills them off in various ingenious ways, um, like the sort of Egyptian plagues. So you, you, you get bats um, and rats because they couldn't do gnats because gnats are probably too small to film. And uh, Terry Thomas gets drained of all his blood. And it's all these various ingenious ways of killing them. And then in Dr. Fibes Rises Again, he decides he's going to take his wife to Egypt to um, bring her back to life by using 
again, sort of, uh, I suppose, the Egyptian Book of Life, like in The Mummy. Um, but he's, there's also another team out there led by um, uh, another Robert Quarry, who Vince Price did not get on with at all because he thought that um, American International were trying to replace him with Robert Quarry. And they have this sort of... Um, uh, again, he takes he takes his revenge. Or he doesn't take his revenge because they've not done anything, but he takes action against these all these archaeologists and they get killed off in ingenious ways, um, including um, Louis Fiander, who gets sort of squashed in a sort of screw thing, like a mechanical screw thing. So that's so all these extraordinary things. And, and the film ends with... Uh, Peter Cushing and uh, not Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing is in it. He plays the sea captain uh, with Vincent Price and his dead wife floating off with him singing over the rainbow, which is slightly strange. Vincent Price does appear with the mu- in the Muppet Show. Doesn't he does he? appear with the puppets. It yes. Isn't Kermit a vampire at some point? Probably in that? yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the last one I'm going to talk about is Theatre of Blood, which is one of my absolute favourite films. And um, Vincent Price is an actor, Edward Lionheart, and he's he doesn't get an award one year, so he he jumps off the balcony of of the the main critic's house, off flat, and they they think he's dead, but he comes back from the dead to take his revenge, and there are various ingenious ways he takes his revenge, like he um uh, he kills one of the critics by um it's it's all Shakespearean deaths. So he, he kills one of them by holding him in a battle of... A, a, a battle? Barrel! <laughs> we have to cut that bit out. In a barrel of red wine. And drowns him, like the like George Duke of Clarence in Richard III. And um, somebody else gets the head... Edward Arthur Lowe gets his head chopped off. Um, somebody gets fed their dogs. That's Robert Morley. Um, I, know, I should object to that, but they're so obviously fake dogs, it's quite funny. Um, Jack Hawkins murders his wife, who's played by Diana Dawes, like in um, Othello. Um, and Jack Hawkins, by this point, had lost his, his uh, voice box to cancer. So he's voiced by Charles Gray. So I don't know whether he got half a fee for doing that, because he's obviously not giving the full performance. Uh, but, yeah, there are various different ways, and it's it's just a really fun film. Um but and it's 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 quite ridiculous really because there's a, a Diana Riggs in it and she plays his, his daughter and she there's this sort of male hippieish kind of character and it's so obviously Diana Riggs dressed as a man that you're like why can't anybody see this? But yeah, it's it it's a great fun film, Theatre of Blood. So I've had great fun watching all these films and I've got many more to watch. Uh, the Theatre Theatre of Blood almost feels like Phoebe's or Phoebe's three, except I, I'm glad it isn't it is. because yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm glad I'm glad it is because I think that would have been pushing that character too much to have had a third film. So yeah. um, uh, apparently it, they were they were going to do Doctor Phoebe's against the Nazis, which might have stretched <laughs> it a little bit too far, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a good selection of films. They are good fun, so. Yeah, yeah. So, listeners, um, I think we've run out of time now. So, um, thank you to Andrew and Lisa for uh, their lessons today from around the Archives uh, University. And uh, there will be more 
and the archives itself coming relatively soon, I think. But uh, oh, I hope so. I yes. hope so. Fairly soon. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so, for having uh, us. We'll say goodbye for now, and and uh, we guess we we will be we'll be back maybe with some more classes from the university in the future. But uh, well, you know, we always have plenty of trivia on the chatterbox episodes too. So we'll be having more of those coming along soon as well. So. Thank you, guys, and bye bye. Goodbye for now. Bye bye. Bye bye. guys it's me Cromarty how are you uh, I, I was very interested in your subjects um, I, I'm not sure which of the classes they want to enroll in uh, obviously the, the Sutton Park one well I, I lived that so I don't feel like uh, um, I, it's so important but I'm not sure if I want to stare at the stars or stare at the stars on TV it's, it's difficult maybe I can do both you, you could do both. We could we could do shorter classes, couldn't we? Oh, well, I, I'm I'm up for anything short or long. I yeah. don't mind. <laughs> well, you know, I, I am very intrigued by your four inches. So I I think I should definitely enrol in both of the classes. But, well, uh, I've been promising Warren a go on it, and he, he hasn't uh, he hasn't had a chance to play with it yet. Has no, because every time he comes it, over, it's cloudy. Every time he comes over, so yeah, everyone's welcome to have a go on it, but you have to come when you know at the right time, don't you? Yeah. Yes. Unless, unless of course, Cromarty, you couldn't invent a, a weather machine that makes it clear any time. Make the clouds go away. Yeah. yeah, I might be able to do that. At least d- distract the weather. You know, um, sort of the 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 weather version of going. Oh, look over there, and uh, distracting the clouds and and bad weather to to sort of hurry across to look at something that isn't actually there. By the time they realise uh, you will have done your your business. So, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> It doesn't take me long to do my business. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh dear, oh dear. Well, I hear the theme music, so I think we may have to go. So, oh dear. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com. Oh dear, (laughs) what's going on now? Oh, it's the Shy Life Podcast. Let's go. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net
Well, uh, guys, I'm, I'm very interested in your lessons, but uh, um, the thing is, I, I feel like, I, you know, I know quite a lot about these subjects in my own right. I, I was actually more interested in perhaps joining the university as a tutor uh, rather than a student. And, uh, but uh, it's difficult to, to know quite what uh, classes are required by your students. Um, I can talk about computers made of cheese. I can talk about ghosts and aliens. And uh, I can talk about um, life in chain jail. I, you know, it just depends what uh, what 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 is required. Uh, is it, is it, do you have any recommendations uh, about how I could become a tutor? Well, I I, I think um, I think people are crying out for somebody. Uh, with your knowledge, yeah, with your uh, practical experience, yeah, yeah, I think any 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 self-respecting university, you know, the th- the, th- the three great ones, Oxford, Cambridge, and Hull, would be uh, absolutely knocking on knocking your door down, wouldn't they, mm-hmm. to 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 have you? But it's about the archives university I want to be part of, not them those second-rate universities. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, you know, we, we we have only the highest standards, mm-hmm. but I, I'm I'm sure you you surpass those in every field, don't don't you, yes, Uncle John? I, I'm just keen keen to get my hands on your four incher. That's what it is. Oh, I'm sure you Thank could you. coax some some very goodness out of it. Yes, yes, yeah. and uh, also. Um, you know, uh, uh, at least when I can discuss our favourite films, our favourite horror films, that would be good. And, mm-hmm. uh, I've got some recommendations, and uh, okay. I'm sure you must. I'm sure you must have some, some as well. Obviously, um, I think there's an area you've not yet explored. It's the many horror films that Bettina Dupre was part of uh, back no. in the sixties. No, um, no, I must such watch as, those. Such as Fiend in Flared Jeans. I've recently seen that. It's very good. Yes. She plays she plays twin sisters, a an evil one, well, no, like a rich one and a poor one, but the poor one is quite evil. Well, actually, they're both quite evil in their own way, but it's very good. She's very good in it. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. uh, she was in many horror films. I'm, I'm, I, I, but I think the, the trouble was that perhaps some of them were uh, in territories that you know they, they, maybe they were shown in Spain or Italy, but they didn't really. Uh, it's only now that they're uh, sort of uh, becoming more widely seen. I think. I, I think some of them didn't even start off as horror films, did they? It's no, just they, the, like, the way the way things well, went when they were way. being filmed. Yeah. So. Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, the Italians are known for jumping on the latest bandwagon. So, you know, they might have, it might have been westerns on on Monday and Tuesday, but by Thursday it was, uh, you know, uh, sort so, so sort of psychological thrillers. So, you know, quick, let's change. Oh no, now it's uh, now it's sharks. Right, let's make let's get the sharks involved. No, it's difficult. They, they were they, they reacted very quickly, almost too quickly. But, uh, 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 well, anyway, I'm glad you're you're interested in me being part of the the, the teaching staff. Yes, yeah, so uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm sure we could find a slot for you. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Oh, fantastic! Oh, of course, I could teach photography as well, which is my latest big thing. So, uh, it's just, just it works very well on audio, surprisingly. But uh, it's very good, very good. Yes, thank you, guys. I think that was a wonderful episode, don't you, Toppy? I sure do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think we uh, are running out of town. Ta- ta- running out of town. Ta- we're running out of town. Ta- 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 ta-
I'm running out of town showing off my four inch. Yeah. I've I've got Um, Benny Hill and a load of ladies running after me. (laughs) So, listeners, I think we've run out of. (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to make you feel better for the barrel thing. (laughs) Um, So, I can't stop laughing. Dear, stop it. Stop making me laugh. many books as you can see I might need to faff about changing books but if I faff about just cut it out in the edit make it seem like I know what I'm talking about (laughs) and can you speak Venusian there (laughs) did you see the whole of that clip did you see the um, this this drawing was done for me by a lady by the name of Mrs. Jill. And I thought that, pic- that picture of the aliens been hit by the bloody ug- ugly stick, hasn't it? But, but then Patrick Moore's hair is all sticky-uppy. Yeah. <laughs> but I've got, I've got so much, I might need to um, spill over into another episode, but that's fine, I'm sure. Because I've got quite a bit, actually. Yeah. We, could have a li- we could have a little Shy at Night segment, recently. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the Shy at Night. Good evening. <laughs> 